HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we're going to be talking with the inimitable Betty Fussell, food writer extraordinaire. And with Betty, you know, um, as with many people, there are many ways to study a culture. And of course, most of them involve food. And Betty used the lens of food to really get into the American culture and study what it is to be an American. In fact, uh, another fellow culinary historian, Rachel Loudon, wrote about Betty that for the past 50 years, Betty Fussell has been writing articles and books on the subject of what it is to be an American, first looking at movies and theater, and then at food which all have to be taken together, I would imagine. Betty, welcome so much to A Taste of the Past. Thank you, Linda. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> writing about uh, becoming a food historian, becoming a culinary historian, becoming a food writer. I like to say with you, sort of, you're the accidental food historian. <laughs> you didn't start out to write about food or study food history. No, but um, I'm of the time when a lot of us got in backwards into food. And somebody like me didn't really know much about food because I grew up without really wonderful food. So I wasn't drawing on memories or anything else. I'm a depression child. Mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, wartime austerity. Not until I got married uh, in, in 1949 and then discovered France. <laughs> As all those people had before me, Alice Waters and Jim's beard, and you know, long, long before they came around. Well, and, but at the same right, at the same time, um, and indeed, in I mean, we were talking earlier, you and I, about um, how there, for many of us, there was no course of study to study food history or culinary history. In fact, a lot of academic. Uh, 
uh, faculties would laugh at you and say, no, that's not, that's not a viable study for you. It's not an academic study. It wasn't even viable conversation. Food right. was low. You didn't talk about food at a dinner table. Right. You know, it is just the way you didn't talk about money or anything that was um, food. Food was vulgar in that sense. Right. So you came to the world of writing through literature and film. You got your master's in fine arts, and so it was literature and film. I got my PhD in the history of literature. Of so English history. Literature. That's why it. There's. That's why it's a connection. If you majored, um, or if you took a doctorate in English literature at the time I did, what this was was the history of English culture. There so you go. So. But it was a I'm an American, you know, <laughs> and always felt that. I was never Anglophilic the way many were in the academic world. Right. In English right. departments, and I always, because I grew up on movies. So for me, pop culture was right at the center of where I always was and am. Mm. And grew up with movies and also grew up in California. They, they go together. So although, <laughs> although I grew up within, let's say, 120 miles of Hollywood, we, I'd never been there, never seen it. It was sort of low, like food. Right, right. But, but oh so enjoyable, both of them, right? Because food is, is pop culture in the deepest sense. Yeah. You know? Well, when you started, um, well, obviously you were writing about other things, and, but I, I asked you earlier, what was your first piece of writing that you remember about food. I remember it precisely because it was so exciting to see my name in print. Uh And this was called The Beautiful Birds of Bress, as in France. (laughs) And those are the decades in which we were traveling like crazy, like everybody else who was in an academic situation, students and professors, because it was so cheap. Right. And we went to France, and as long as I'm here, why don't I write about this? Because it's so exciting. It was exciting, yeah. Exciting, the food. And if anyone has still, you know, the, the chickens of breast are still professed to be some of the best. For all the same reasons, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you didn't, and you didn't really continue with it. I mean, you were in and out of it and until, until much later. Because I really couldn't have a full-time job. I was a 1950s housewife and mother of children. Mm-hmm. And you did not go and work in a law office. <laughs> you were trained to be the wife of your husband. And then, of course, your, but your brain doesn't go to sleep. Thank goodness. Exactly. And your brain has already been trained, and it doesn't shut off. It just needs, uh, you know, how, where are we going to put this brain to use? Yeah. We're traveling anyway. And I learned about food through travel, because how will people open up to you? Through food. You don't even need the language. No. You have immediately something in common. Well, what was so wonderful is that, you know, the, you were saying food was on was low in terms of academic studies. Film was low in terms of cultural activities. And, of course, now look where they both have come, you know, yes, happy because, to say. Because America has grown up. America grew into its own America. post-World War II. That's it. You said it. America. So you took those two things and looked at them, studied them, and wrote about them for people to learn more about their own culture. America was low also. It, as you said, we all look to Europe. Right. So you wrote about America. I wrote about it to discover myself. Who am I as an American? Because I was being defined all the time by Europeans. <gasps> those savages, those yanks. <laughs> it was shocking and interesting. Yeah. Well, one, I, I do remember that... Um, 
you wrote a wonderful book of people that you admired, and, and that was called The Masters of American Cookery. And this was a look at some people. You tell me about it. Those were my teachers, Mm -hmm. because I did not have, I didn't grow up on Granny's apron. Um, The food in my my family was absolutely terrible. The land of the bland. It was Midwestern Bible Belt food in California. (gasps) There were no fresh salads, etc. So it was postum, Ovaltine, that kind of thing. So the discovery of the drama of food, what food could be, was enormous. Well, who were my predecessors, and where did I learn what the recipes were? There was MFK Fisher and Craig Claiborne and Julia Child and James Beard. They were all came really to fruition of Alice's later, but, you know, in, this, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. What a magnificent opening. <laughs> Great company. <laughs> Great company to keep, and that and that true that was true. It really did open up. I, I think many uh, many people in America and other cultures to American cookery, as it says. Eventually, Jim Jim Beard was really the pioneer in this in his book of American cookery and and exploring nineteenth century cooks with their books like Eliza Leslie, Miss Eliza Leslie of Philadelphia. Hmm. So as a literature student, I could immediately have a whole library, a whole new resource, a world again I had never dreamt of. It was all there already in the 19th century. It's wonderful. Here it was, all about food, too. Well, you didn't stop there, because then you went on to write, I Hear America Cooking. Which was my way of mapping the country that I was in. That's a way to find out America through food. So I went around to all the ports of entry. And this is where America, you know, we're all immigrants here. But each immigrant carries his own baggage from someplace else. So we have these pockets that become regional cooking. So, yeah, really, and it really was a, 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 um, a writing on regional cooking, which in America, you know, we think of, okay, yes, um, more about the immigrant, the ethnic cooking. But America has regional cooking, and people, a lot of people are slow to, to accept that. It has it because immigrants came and then adapted their own cultural baggage, their own cuisine to whatever was there. A wholly different ecology, wholly different plants, etc. Wholly different ways of, of being around a table. You know, it's interesting because um, I, I think I hear America cooking is, it, you do have, it is a cookbook of sorts, because you do have many recipes in it from these regions. But it is more your musings and your impressions and and your emotional uh, take on a lot of these regions, some of which at that time cookbook reviewers criticized you for. Oh, of course, because this wasn't a cookbook. This wasn't a conventional cookbook. And, and they somehow missed the point? Um, it's not that they missed it. The point hadn't yet been made that food history was not only an okay thing, it was a real subject. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that you wax on poetic about, uh, you know, a, a particular dish from Louisiana, why not? Well, that is my discovery and my response to I'm discovering for the first time Cajun cooking in a Cajun culture. Paul Prudham had just began, but began. I mean, you know, all this was new. It was new to America. It's new to America looking at itself. And I was just very much a part of that time and had the good fortune to be when all of these windows were opening at once. Well, you really 
took the bull by the horns, so to speak. Um, being a California girl, we can. There were still lots of ranches. I guess we could say cows. that. Right. Cows. Um, and it, well, we'll get to the cows because. But then you went and focused on something that is so indigenous to the to America, first of all, but and so much a part of American culture and what has changed food across the world. You did an incredible study and book on corn. What led you there? Exactly what I had been exploring, because when I explored the ports of entry around the outside, what was left was the middle, the entire Middle West, where corn grows. And in order, these were my ancestors. Those were the farmers who had come from Scotland and settled in the Midwest. Okay, uh, so that sounds very American to me. In order to find out where corn had begun, how it got to Kansas, I had to explore the history of the whole hemisphere. I was astonished. Everything was a surprise and a delicious one. And then, of course, where corn went, good and bad, beyond that point, too. And it became a real political issue, you know, after the fact. But if if there were one surprising thing we didn't know about corn, is there anything in particular that that struck you in your study when you yes. were writing it? The high degree of civilization in Mesoamerica where corn began and helped provide it. So corn created settlements. Hmm. It's, it's the basis of our agriculture in the Western world, but it is totally different from the plow culture of Europe. And that fact of how there were more dishes on Montezuma's table when uh, the conquerors came than there were on Henry VIII in London. You know, this is the way in which the corn culture built the whole Western Hemisphere was amazing and still amazes me. And the way the United States, as just one part of that culture, turned it into something else entirely. Well, that's the, his- the story of America. America's industrialization. Boom! A radical new world. Hmm. Indeed. Indeed. Well, you didn't stop there. And uh, along with your other many writings and lectures and, and uh, presentations, you went out and you tell me which came first. Okay, you went out and shot your own first piece of meat. Oh, that's very recent. <laughs> really <laughs> but recent. But it kind of coincided <laughs> with your book on about meat, about beef, called Raising Steaks. But, and, of course, cows are a natural, logical <laughs> uh, follow-up to corn. Because nowadays, what do cows eat? Corn. But I knew that they certainly cattle were connected to what happened to corn. Hmm. And it happened with a vengeance. I, it's again a discovery. I had no idea how really deeply entrenched the factory cow was. So that has in turn spurred the backlash of uh, where are the real animals? We're killing them, but we're not killing them ourselves. We shut it away. And, the, and you say the, the feed, uh, they were... The taste changed. Well, of course, everything changes. Everything. The health of the cow, the health of people eating it, the health of the environment. We're all connected. Well, indeed, in between this time, as I said, you, you, you were continuing to write and continuing your food essays. And um, something interesting occurred in the middle of all that. You wrote a memoir called My Kitchen Wars. This was... Food, but it was an autobiography, and it was, and it really. Tell me, tell me what that did for you. 
but it's the, it's the same pattern. Food memoirs has become so common. You know, uh, you live twelve years and you have material for a food memoir. You know, when I was in my crib, this is what I ate. Fine, that's fine. But you know, when I was uh, writing my kitchen wars, I really wrote it in for about twenty years mm-hmm. in my head. So that was a long time of brewing on the back of the stove. And it was a natural for me because it could d- describe for myself the story of how, how, how I ended up in a kitchen <laughs> you know, after my, my uh, Shakespeare doctorate or my teaching in university, Shakespeare. Okay, uh, what was that about? And I thought, well, that's a perfectly wonderful way to go. Hmm. Well, having that theatrical background as well, it was turned into a play. And so it was. It was uh, on stage for a while. And that's a great pleasure because in a, a memoir is by definition a monologue, mm-hmm. and then to have it staged by uh, a fine actress like Dorothy Lyman was wonderful. Wonderful to see it, and people because she happens to look like me. She's from Minnesota, yes, right. so I said tall blonde. And people said, "What? What does it feel like to see yourself up there?" I said, "It's not myself. It wasn't myself when I wrote it down." Uh-huh. It's a theatrical presentation, whatever you choose to write about yourself. And still we had food woven. Not still, very That's much so. We had food That's woven right through it. Right, right. 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 Well, we're going to talk more about um, your travels and where you are today when we come back after a short break. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. We are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Betty Fussell, food writer and historian and bon vivant. <laughs> and um, Betty, we were talking about your, your memoir, The Kitchen Wars, and um, I, I think it's interesting because you, it, it was so appropriate to, um, to what you were doing at the time and then continue to do. I mean, you are a home cook. You are... You were you were educated to be you know the the, the literature professor and and um, and film 
uh, critic or or uh, film historian, but you were also a very successful home cook, um, self-taught in many ways, and but also loved the sensuousness of words and. You like the sensuousness of foods. I mean, that comes through your writing, and and every bite, every meal for you is something to write about, something to to look at deeper. Uh, you are teaching a course. You talked about um, corn and and how that shaped so much of the culture and and dishes. You are teaching, you're going to be teaching a course in Mexico shortly called Word of Mouth. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. Beautiful Mexico, Tepotlan, which is south of Mexico City and a little bit east of Cuernavaca. But the it still has, it still lives by corn culture, as Mexico does. And so it still has the same gods. It still has the same daily festivals within this small community. So it's this kind of little beating heart of Mexico. So it's we go we go to the market so this it immediately connects words to food just by being there because yeah. this is the way people live this is not the way they lived in america earlier but we are beginning to embrace the fact that food is at the center of every culture and nowhere is it more alive than in mexico because it never got mexico never got industrialized mm. it is now getting on the way, but it's still there, beautifully. Mm. So the the course is called Word of Mouth? Yes. And I, I like the way it was described, human dynamic of eating and telling. Yes, because they are totally related. We only have one mouth. What does it do? Two very different but totally allied things. It takes in food. It puts out words. Oh. Perfect, and it's what you have been doing all along, which was you know no no surprise to that. Well, I mentioned that you grew up in California, and that you were a California girl. Maybe at heart you still are. I don't know, but New York kind of likes to claim you because you moved east very early on, and you've been living in New York for quite some time. And we are very fortunate to to have you and have that exposure to your to your work and to your words and wisdom. Uh, how do you feel about it? Do you feel that you're still a western girl or do you feel very much a native new yorker i have two romances one is the california landscape i grew up in Mm. two is new york city which i fell in love with my first trip before marriage in 1949 after five days sleeping not sleeping in a sleeping bed on a train but sleeping you know in the in the car Hmm. sitting up And the wonder of New York City has never left me. It is the most beautiful, last of the great cities of the last two centuries. Mm. (laughs) There was Rome, there was Paris, there was London, and then New York. And New York, yeah. Well, as I say, many of us have been very fortunate to to have had a, a... a wonderful association with you, and, and share your musings and your <laughs> and your and your words of uh, about food. And as a fellow culinary historian of New York, you contributed a wonderful piece to our most recent uh, journal called the New York Food Story. Food Story, but we like to call it Food Story, like history. <laughs> and um, I wanted to share this with our listeners because for a couple of reasons. Um, as I say, I feel very fortunate that you've been here in New York since that's where I am. But um, 
you are soon to leave New York after how many years? 30 years in the same apartment. I've lived in the East for 60 years, so more than 60. 60 <laughs> years out East, and you're going back to California. I'm going home. Going home to California, and it and it yeah, it, it is a sad day for us when you leave New York, but we will still hear your musings, but you wrote a most wonderful, and I think beautiful parting words for New York and how it plays in the culture of food, and I'm going to have you Read that to our listeners, because I think it's just a a beautiful ode to our shores. Uh, Betty wrote this piece, and it's called Where the River Meets the Rock, or Meditations on a Frying Pan. And no, she doesn't mean her cast iron (laughs) frying pan at home, but it's a a light ship that is parked off of a pier on 26th Street in New York on on the uh, shores of the Hudson River. And it's called the Lightship Frying Pan, which used to be a lightship that warned passing boats of, of any dangers and where they were close to the piers. Uh, and Betty goes there on the pier. Tell me a little bit about it. You go there to eat lunch, do what, whatever? Used to go there in sunset time when nobody was there because it had been undiscovered. It was the last publicly owned pier. Now it's been discovered, mm-hmm. so it's crowded, but you know, that's, that's its own theatrical scene. Yeah. Well, one day you arranged to meet a friend there for lunch, and I'm going to have you read what you wrote for this story when you met your friend at the pier, the lightship frying pan. We are both picnickers. Each of us discovered this place separately long ago, but now we meet to share food as well as the view. This time I bring hard-boiled eggs, already peeled, with salt and pepper in a plastic twist. I bring green and black olives, cherry tomatoes. She brings two pieces of fried chicken and a container of guacamole and chips. She brings real knives and forks and cloth napkins. I bring two large pieces of black chocolate. I dip my chocolate into the pepper and think of Henry Hudson nosing into the mouth of the river 400 years ago, searching in vain for the pepper trail he'd been hired to find by bosses of the Dutch East India Company. Instead, Henry found only oysters and maize and beans and squash and enough blackbirds for 4,020 pies. I think of how food brings the river and the rock together. The one is named for an Englishman hunting spice, the other for native Lenape hunters and planters at their campsite, Manahata. I think of all those thousands who came to plant apples and pears and grapes, raise sheep and pigs and cows, brew cider and beer and wine, make cheese and sausage and cookies. I think of how food is at the center of all commerce, for farmer and merchant, rich and poor. My friend and I savor every bite at the end of the pier, at the end of the day, as the sun goes down, outlining to the west the skylines of Hoboken and Weehawken in New Jersey, bearing their history and their names. To the east, The sun's last rays glint off the steel and glass verticals that were once flat sheds when Dutch merchants jammed the port of New Amsterdam with boats. 
right in front of us, a speedboat buzzes like a hornet alongside the slow barge creeping upriver. Behind the barge, a cruise ship looms like a sci-fi monster and blocks out the sun, silhouetting tiny stick figures that line the rail on the topmost deck. The ship's horn booms like a tuba. Was the captain greeting the frying pan? We follow the ship's descent to the tip of the island where it passes on the left the dark shroud that is rising where once the twin towers were. We see the river opening into the sea where our lady with the torch stands still to welcome or hail and farewell. We know we are eating history in every bite as we savor the meeting of river, rock, and sea. Hard-boiled eggs with a sprinkle of salt and pepper never tasted so good. Wonderful Musing by Betty Fussell. Betty, thank you so much. That was a wonderful piece. And you have done so much for the world of culinary history and food writing in its own right. And I hope that this will be one of many pieces that we'll see in the Journal for Culinary Historians. And our listeners can find out more about the Culinary Historians of New York uh, by going to culinaryhistoriansny.org. And Betty, you can always count on having a, a bed to lie on here in New York when you come back to visit. And I wish you all the best in your travels. Thank you, and I'll bring the hard-boiled eggs. Oh, great. It's a deal. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Heritage Radio Network is now on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.